contemplating the ending of our second full day of practice together. Noticing how it is. And recollecting all the different myriads of states, moods, sensations. that we've been in that might have seemed so urgent, so solid, so compelling at the time when we were faced with that pain or that unbearable feeling. Or that exquisite smooth tranquility of the nervous system when there's a letting go and a gathering of the body-mind or a restlessness that seems so unstoppable and so me very important at the rather than always to have our nose to the grindstone plugging away at our technique though technique and diligence are important qualities it's very important to recollect from time to time to get into perspective allow that reviewing then to inform our renewed efforts as we recollect these manifold states from discouragement to inspiration to thinking we've got it to being convinced we never had it or we've lost it just notice where are they now The experience of eating breakfast this morning, waiting in the line, serving ourselves. This moment is empty of that. Might be a memory, and there's a, a memory of eating breakfast that arises, shifts, dissolves. This moment is empty of the moods we were experiencing it, the actual sensations of midday. It 
empty of that howling. The wind's still blowing, but the howling wind. It's not here. What is, is here. Impressions from the contact of the eyes to form. Impressions of the sounds. Impressions of our, how our body feels now at the ending of this second day. But when something's manifesting itself to us, it's so easy to impart just in the concepts that we use, the way that we receive it, the way we conceive it. So easy to impart a solidity. This problem. Me, you, him, her. Painful, good, bad. All these these words have such power and such emotive feelings associated with them. That that are conducive to us not actually recognizing being with the true nature of these impressions, of these sounds, of these sights, of these feelings, of these circumstances. So it's very, very important from time to time to keep recollecting this otherwiseness, what's called, the Buddha called otherwiseness. However we say it is, however we think it is, whatever snapshot we've taken with a perception, with our seeing, with our hearing, it's already, the very next instant, becoming otherwise. as a natural expression of the of the dharma of conditions the way of conditions it's the way of sound to ever become otherwise as it vibrates shifts resounds subsides Concepts, though, oftentimes disguise that because concepts, because we can pick them up again, because they become familiar, oftentimes lend an an impression to the thingness, thingness of circumstances, the the itness, the meanness, the minus. Get a sensation in the back. Oh, my back pain again. Oh. What am I going to do about it? In other words, it's already become an it. And then an I. We created an I. We created an it. What am I going to do about it? What I tried yesterday hasn't worked. 
Not that we shouldn't consider things. But from time to time, it's important that this even very thought process, what am I going to do about it, is, 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 is what those concepts are relating to is a sensory process. It's, it's in our meditating practice that we can actually start to see for ourselves a sensory process that's actually ever-changing, fluid, We actually don't attain anything. This sounds strange, but we actually don't. <clears throat> After the Buddha's enlightenment, that was one of the reasons why he was reluctant to talk. He thought, I haven't really attained anything. It's the deep, 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 perfect recognition that one can't grasp anything. Because everything's always becoming otherwise. Just like this this sound of my voice. It's essentially ungraspable. It's there and it's not there. If you say it's nothing there, well, there's something there. It's there. It's like a bubble. If you say it's nothing, there it is. If you try to take it away and say it's something, it pops. So you can't really say it's nothing. Can't really say it's something. Words can't really approach this Dharma. Or before this Dharma, the Buddha said, before this way, this nature that we're all mysteriously a part of. Words fall silent before this nature. We can't really pin it down. If we don't really have a meditation practice, then this just becomes more words. Just theorize and thinking. But in our two days, we've actually been using some words to direct our mechanism for contacting reality. We've been using words for directed thought, what we've called vitaka, for for directing vision, not just eye vision, directing noticing, the eye of dharma, that direct capacity to meet as it is our experience. <clears throat> been directing to here now. <clears throat> to the body. It doesn't have to be the body. Someone quite sweet they are confessing in the interview today. When I came, you just were going on about body, body, body. I thought that was very honest of them to confess it in the interview. Bodies can be heavy and, you know, we like to go to the light stuff. 
but bodies have their use. And why, why the Buddha encouraged us to start with the body oftentimes is because it moves relatively slowly compared to this mind that makes it from Antarctica to the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa to my dog's flea problem <laughs> to how my mother's doing with her osteoporosis and back again wondering what to talk about tonight in a flash. <clears throat> Whereas the body, at least, it's, 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 okay, ultimately it's vibrating for those of us who are getting a little more subtle into the vibration. Okay, the body's actually vibrating very quickly too. But its apparent changes are, are much slower. So it can be an anchor, a steadying point. And using these thoughts to direct our attention so that our seeing isn't only through the prism of this concept, that concept, this view, that opinion, so that our seeing is starting to be informed by our actual experience of being with something, anything, being within breath, being without breath, being with sitting, being with walking, using these thought processes to direct the attention and then receiving what we call vichara, making the effort not just to convince ourselves what we're seeing. That's a genuine in-breath. That's a pretty good in-breath. Nobody's in-breath is as good as my in-breath. I doubt if anyone's thinking like that. But rather than trying to conceptualize about it so much, this directed thought's more just to bring our attention there and then the vichara, what we're calling vichara, is that which feels out directly. What's it like? That's a question. What's it like? Notice when you ask a question that empties the mind for a moment, what's it like to breathe in? It's very different from telling yourself what it's like. It's asking. It's inviting the heart to be open and receive. What's it like to breathe out? What's the head feel like? What's the face feel like? What do the hands feel like? We can have an opinion about our hands. Beautiful hand, not beautiful hand, stubby hand, elegant hand, wrinkled, old, African sun-spotted hand. But when we invite, invite Vitakata, how is the hand in terms of how it feels? Because I've been practicing Qigong. <laughs> <laughs> Vibrating. 
pulsing. Becoming different every moment. Becoming different every moment. And yet, there's an aspect to that experience which is still, which knows, knowing quality. There's an aspect which is vibrating, tingling. Just like when we invite Invite ourselves to what is it like, like to be with a sound. Sound manifests, become otherwise, dissolves. Aspect of that experience which is moving, becoming otherwise, and the aspect which is still, that which remains. quality of knowing, quality of listening, what we call on the first night the wonderful true brightness. All these different experiences from the first day through the different sittings and walkings and moods and thoughts have all, just like this sound, (coughs) just like the howling wind, just like breakfast this morning, have manifest vividly in consciousness and and dissolved and become otherwise. Could someone gently wake up that person? So why, why I'm reiterating this is I for years practiced meditation and I, I'm, I'm addicted to tranquility. I love tranquility. love smooth state. When I was talking this morning about the beach after all the party of the night before that's all riveted and torn up and footprinted and, and how when the tide comes in and out and smooths it so that there's a continuum so that even though there's billions of grains of sand when the beach is smooth it's one even though there's so many different parts of our body and our moods and our emotions and our thoughts when we become a little bit calm it's unified it's single it's tranquilized it's smooth and the thoughts can direct us to that and then we can even let the thoughts go because we're not going anywhere. We're just staying with that smooth, easeful place. I used to imagine, keep imagining, if I just get a little bit smoother, just a little bit smoother, then it will just All suffering will be exploded. And I'll never, ever, ever will have any more problems again. That's called classic wrong view. (laughs) 
It's like a it's like a child. It was all right. It's not evil. Wouldn't it be nice if everything was nice, as our teacher used to say? Wouldn't it be nice if pain all went away? The lion laid down with the lamb. It would be nice. But my I was falling into to the trap that the Buddha called one of the basic he said, there's two roots. If you don't understand these two roots, you, you never arrive at what we're seeking, freedom. The first root is called the root, that which gives rise to endless birth and death. Endless birth and death, what is the root of that? The Buddha said, is a mind that grasps at conditions. That's rooted in thinking, thinking that there's actually something to grasp, something to get rid of. When we don't understand that root of endless birth and death, we grasp at conditions. I grasp at that smooth peach, that tranquilized nervous system. And it eludes me. So I try harder. And it eludes me. And I try harder. And it eludes me. And I think it's your fault. Tanissa don't make so much noise. Get your practice together. Just for the sake of a dumb discussion. <laughs> but when we don't understand, when we, with the basic misunderstanding, back to my point, the Buddha said when we're doing that, that's like cooking sand with the hope of getting savory, delicious food. What's wrong with the seasoning? We're we're asking from sand what sand doesn't do. Sand does great beach stuff. (laughs) But it doesn't turn into delicious, savory food for us. I'm asking from that condition what it can't give. I'm going to get there. (laughs) <laughs> Tanisha just whispered don't forget the second root good point <laughs> the blessings of teamwork <laughs> it's the nature of conditions to become otherwise to be unstable that's the nature of of conditions, we don't see that when we're fooled by the names that we give them. When we, when we're fooled by our perceptions that, that create more, much more solidity than there really is. So, actually, the Buddha said it's helpful to remember all these conditions of self and other and retreats and liking and not liking and relationships and birth and death. They're all like bubbles. They're there. They're not there. They're all like lightning flashes. It's there, it's not there. 
They're all like dewdrops. Dewdrops in the morning. On an African morning are like frost. The dew and the rising sun glistens on it. The jewels, thousands of jewels. So the dew is on the hundreds of thousands of spider webs. It's magic. But perception can, can, can say, ah, and, and try to imagine a thing there. But those thousands of beautiful, glistening, rainbow-colored dewdrops are not separate from the sun. They're not separate from the moisture. They're not separate from all these other conditions. Because when the sun changes, when the sun gets a little higher, the heat shifts just a little bit, it's gone. Our perception, our way that we receive, the way that we think about this mystery of our existence, making false assumptions. There aren't separate, discrete entities. Everything's interrelated on the conditioned level and dissolving back into this second root that that Tanisra was reminding me of. The two roots that we misunderstand, one, the grasping mind that creates endless birth and death because when we grasp at a condition imagining that it's mine, We lean on it because it's solid. My health, my intelligence, my mastery of the universe, or my whatever. Then when that changes, if we're leaning on something that that degenerates, that collapses, what happened? And yet all the time we lean on pleasure, all the time we lean on Success, we lean on praise, we lean on imagining that that's a solid platform. When actually, just like the dewdrop, just like the bubbles, that's why it creates birth and death. It's there, I'm born, it shifts, I've lost it. And the trying to make food, delicious food out of sand, is when we keep trying again, grasping, trying to grasp. The second primordial root that we're confused about is what I mentioned the first night the wonderful true brightness that which is what also described as the luminous heart which the Buddha talked about which is it's not a question of did you get one of those luminous heart I don't think it made it down to Africa. <laughs> I don't think it made it into our family. Okay, we might not know this yet, but it's important. A sage, a great awakened sage said, this heart is luminous. There is a wonderful, true brightness which gives rise to all things. All things dissolve into this. Because of conditions... Because of circumstances, rain, because of pain, because of praise, because of this body, that body, and assumptions that we make, we assume that we've lost this wonderful true brightness. We assume that we've lost the luminosity of heart. And so then we think there's something to get. So we we hold on to praise. 
we hold on to my smooth it's a skillful state it's not bad but my smooth tranquil nervous system it's a skillful state but when we imagine that it's really something to keep that very moment is birth that very moment we create death inevitably any moment of thinking we've got something we ensure that we've just created death and Mara as the Buddha said stands by our side just that minute the tempter the king of birth and death the deluder stands by our side the moment we make that assumption. So it's important from time to time just to recollect how things keep dissolving and rather than getting panicky about it, actually to explore relaxing into letting things come and go, letting them go. Letting a thought go. Letting the sounds as they perfectly arise within this luminosity, this natural luminosity of awareness. Letting the sounds dissolve. And asking the question, what remains? This is the way to get in touch with this second primordial root the true nature is to keep asking the question, what remains? One of the images that was used to help us access this is sunlight streaming through a window, revealing the dust dancing, the dust motes, tens of thousands of dust motes dancing. The dust motes move, what remains? what is unmoved, what is still. We're not preferring the stillness over the dust motes, but when we only know that which moves, when the consciousness is focused, obsessed with, only what moves, grasping at that, that's birth and death. We're not taking a stand against conditions, but we're allowing ourselves to notice that that's not the whole story. In fact, that's In fact, imagining it's the whole story, the Buddha taught is like taking one bubble in the vast sea and imagine that's the whole sea. Imagine one little tiny bubble in the vastness of the sea. Taking that tiny (coughs) little bubble and imagining that's the whole. When consciousness is focused on my way, my opinion, my truth, my problems, We're focused on the conditions, focused on the dust motes, and haven't gotten the perspective on that which remains. Our practice, our meditation practice, we're encouraging ourselves to not take a view of conditions versus dust motes against space, not to but to just know things as they are. To notice that an in-breath shifts and changes and dissolves, becomes an out-breath. 
becomes an in-breath, becomes an out-breath. The morning becomes the evening. And happiness becomes neutrality, becomes discouragement, becomes enthusiasm, becomes brightness, becomes dullness. Being very patient with ourselves. We keep little by little allowing ourselves to realize that every condition that arises ceases. So getting the feeling to give space. This is why this is why when I was talking this morning about samadhi, this cultivation of unification of heart, which is the platform for wisdom. Wisdom without any samadhi, our wisdom is just the mind thinking. We don't have any samadhi. By samadhi meaning if we don't have any ability to be steady, we don't have a little bit of samadhi, some samadhi, then our wisdom is just opinions. It's like scientific equipment that needs to be steady to get an accurate reading. It's like a camera. It moves too much. You get distorted readings. When the mind and the heart is a little more steady, it's able to see as it is. When I first uh, met Ajahn Chah, Remember this because Tanisha told her lovely stories this afternoon. <coughs> so that reminded me of my first meeting. I had done a little meditation without a teacher before I got to him and had and done one retreat with a teacher. <coughs> and I was deep into this classic wrong view. <laughs> of literally wanting an enlightenment that just exploded everything. So I was hoping for a tap on the forehead, because uh, I'd heard about this great master. So uh, I'd gone off to Thailand, and, and I, someone I had met who was living in Thailand, offered to introduce me to Ajahn Chah. And um, so we took the nine-hour train ride from Bangkok up to the northeast, and he uh, took me to the monastery. I should have expected it wouldn't go just the way I thought it would because the, <laughs> the guy that was with me was the most confident, one of the most confident people I ever met. <coughs> Very confident. Psychiatrist, intellectual, written articles on Buddhism, walked across the North Pole. He'd done everything. Flew. So confident. 
What impressed me about him is when he first mentioned Ajahn Chah, though, his voice got real quiet. This big, strapping, confident, yang, very male guy speaking with reverence. I didn't know, what's that? About Ajahn Chah's is enlightened. Gee. It was such a beautiful thing. I hadn't seen, I hadn't encountered that before. Reverence. And he said, and he has a few Westerners with him, and and the senior one, Samato, if if he's not enlightened, he's really close. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, gee, I gotta go. should have known that being around Ajahn Chah really changed him. I mean, you know, because from this, who he was, and he got so... So anyway, he took me on the train, was, was quite confident, and but then as we approached the monastery, he got thrown a curveball. He loved one, he loves animals, looks after animals as well, and, and we encountered, as we walked in the monastery, some, some monks who were being very unmonk-like, tormenting a snake. They were hassling it. Not a good thing for a monk to do. He got very upset. So upset that when Ajahn Chah offered him a cup of tea, and this guy is composed, he knocked it over. I said, gee, Doug? So anyway, like to Miss Ajahn Chah, then asked me why I had come, and so I had a my logical, rational answer. Enlightenment and and do you know meditation? Yes. And I described what I did and I was at that time doing a sweeping technique and I was quite proud because I could not only sweep down one side, I could sweep down two sides of the body simultaneously. <laughs> Which I thought I couldn't do when I first started to meditate, so I thought that was obviously progress. And when I did meditate, I oftentimes saw a light, which I thought, in my classic wrong view, was, was getting towards enlightenment. <laughs> uh, and so then, Ajahn Chah didn't look impressed. Uh, but was sitting in his chair, and then he got off his wicker chair, got on all fours, and started sniffing around. <laughs> like that. And everybody started laughing. And he said some things in Thai, and everybody started laughing as he was sniffing all over the place. In retrospect, now that I have a beloved dog, <laughs> I realized, gosh, that looks a lot like a dog sniffing all over the place. <laughs> Anyway, I kept saying, Doug, what's he saying? And there was all this laughter. And finally, uh, Doug gave me a translation. And he said, Ajahn Chah says that your meditation (laughs) is sniffing all over the place. And uh, that really, why don't you just stay with something simple? Be with your breath. He said, if you understand one thing 
you'll understand everything. Let Samato teach you how to be a monk. That was it. And Ajahn Chah had a way of making fun, even though everyone was laughing. He had a way of doing it so you felt blessed, felt touched. Because on one level, I did come to learn. I knew on some level behind my confidence that I didn't really know. I'm grateful that I, I knew uh, I had the good fortune to sense a teacher. Give yourself permission to be simple. I keep coming back to that. What arises, ceases. Just as this sound arises, its nature is to cease back into that which is. Whatever name you give it arises and ceases. You can call it wonderful true brightness. Today someone called it the glory of God. Call it the Buddha, nature, the kingdom of heaven, the eternal Tao. Words can't really approach. Let the words direct us to empower us to trust our intuitive, our capacity to know that what arises ceases. Like every breath, every thought, every sound, can this help us to trust a little more that to even the tranquil nervous system, even the difficult state, to somehow recognize that they're shifting, changing, and aren't eternal possessions. It's helpful in our practice, as I was saying this morning, to rather than thinking concentration is like an ice pick, one-pointed, concentrated, scrunched up, remember these tips that the Buddha gave of relaxing. Remember this encouragement that he gave to, okay, we start with a point. We start with something very simple, but then encouraging us to let the attention just open so that we're relaxed, so that the whole body's present, so that we get a feeling of that lightning flash dissolving into the immensity of the sky so that we get the feeling of the breath arising and dissolving back into this spaciousness of just the inner listening, the simplicity of the inner listening. When I get complicated, I just like coming back to Ajahn Chah. He said, let go a little, have a little peace. Let go a lot, have a lot of peace, let go completely, allow things to come and go, following their nature, let go completely, have complete peace. 